Luke chapter 24. So we're going to start in verse 13 where we stopped last week, and we're going to read down to verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, and the two of them is referring back all right, to what was going on in the first 12 verses. So they were in the room when the lady showed up to tell about the empty tomb. About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, Hey, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their face downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus asked, What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. I mean, this is the most strange passage. It just makes you laugh. Like, what's going on here? But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> it's like, what? It's right. I know what you're saying. Like, what in the world? Boom, he's gone. All right, so look what happens. 32, they asked each other, weren't not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they got up, they returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and he has appeared to Simon. And then the two, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful uh, for the beauty of the morning, Lord. We're thankful that we can gather together as a body once again and and hear your word sung, hear your word spoken over us. And Lord, as we unpack this text this morning, once again, may your spirit, may your spirit please come. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's what I want to do with this morning with this fascinating text. I love this passage of scripture. I read it probably 15 times this week and laughed almost every time as I'm reading this text. So you got to think. So 
So Luke tells us in Acts chapter one that Jesus spent 40 days with these with people, 40 days after his resurrection, talking, sharing, being with the disciples as well as other people. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw Jesus during this 40-day period. And so I find it intriguing, and I think there's something going on here that Luke chooses just three stories, three stories, and all of them are in chapter 24. Of the 40 days that he's with them, he chooses three stories to tell us about the resurrected Jesus. And one of those is this little story. It's only found in Luke about these two guys that are headed back home, a little dejected because all their hopes are kind of dashed because they think Jesus is still dead. And so here's what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm trying to answer the question, why? Why did Luke tell us this story? Of all that he could have chosen, why this story? And I think there's something here that's extraordinary in the way that Jesus reveals himself. There's something extraordinary in the ordinary way, all right, I'm gonna get there, hang with me. There's something extraordinary in the ordinary way that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these two people. And I, and I think there's something there for us as we know what it looks like to kind of live post-Easter, so to speak. What does it really look like for me to live, quote unquote, the resurrected life. And so I just want to give you a heads up. There's a good chance that I may leave you with more questions than answers today. And I'm good with that. I really am. You may be really mad at me, but I'm okay with that. You can be mad because I think it's okay for sometimes us walking out here, wrestling with this text, and hopefully it'll push you to talk to somebody about it. And hopefully, Lord willing, push you to get in a group because that's when we kind of talk about this stuff. So if you leave here with more questions than answers, then guess what? In my mind, I've accomplished my goal today, da 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 so I'm, I'm good with that. All right, so here's how we're working through this text. I think there's two kind of thoughts here or two big observations that I wanna spend just a little bit of time talking about that lead us into this one big idea about this kind of like, all right, what, what do we learn about what it looks like for me to live this resurrected life post-Easter? So two big thoughts, two big observations that lead us into my kind of one big main idea. So the first observation that is so here, right? You just, like, it just jumps off the page. You have to see it. The first time you read it, you see it, is that Jesus hides. Jesus keeps himself hidden. And I don't know about you, but that's just kind of strange, right? I mean, look, look what he says here in verse 15. So they're, they're walking away from Jerusalem. These guys are having a conversation and the way that that word is written, it's not just like a cordial conversation. It's kind of a heated debate that's going on here about all the things that have taken place in Jerusalem and like, like, what is going on here? The ladies come back, tell us there's no body. They go, no body, but nobody's seen Jesus. Like there's this heated debate and they're walking back to Emmaus. And as they're talking, here comes Jesus. I love, love this. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus asked, what, what are you guys talking about together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so the first thing you're going is, what in the world? Why, Jesus? Why are you hiding? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm writing this story, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Dude, one of some of the first things I'm doing, I'm going to Pontius Pilate. Boom, Right? I told you, right? 
I go to the religious leaders, drop a mic on them. I, boom, I'm here. You thought it was done, over. You thought you got rid of me, but here I am, right? Don't you think that that's kind of how you would want to do the story? Instead, Jesus shows up to these two people who are not even the original 12, and he's hidden. He, he's hidden. And, and we're the readers of this text, and we start laughing and chuckling because we, the readers, know what the characters don't know. They're talking to Jesus about what happened to Jesus, right? They're having a conversation with the man that all these events happened to. And it's just utterly humorous as you work through this. And so you've got to go like, all right, what is going on here? Why is he hidden? Why is he kept from them understanding and seeing who Jesus is? Well, obviously the first one is this. I mean, first thing we see here is that, that the word, the verb kept here is obviously in a passive language. That means that some, somehow supernaturally, by God's divine purpose, he's keeping them from seeing who this man really is. But just like we see in all of scripture that yes, sovereign God, control of all things, but also human responsibility, there's a massive paradox here that we can't fully explain. So yes, there is a way in which God supernaturally is keeping them from seeing Jesus. But as we read through the text, we can also see that they themselves are keeping themselves from seeing who Jesus is. And so one of the ways we see this, all right, I'll give you a couple here real quickly here is that Jesus just seems really ordinary, doesn't he? He's just a normal guy. I mean, yeah, nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead, so nobody's expecting him to kind of walk up next to him and start talking to him. And at the same time, if, if someone was going to rise from the dead, I'm sure in their minds, because it's in our minds, that he would look different. There, there would be kind of a glow that he would look like Gandalf, right? It's like all white, you, know, just, you just would imagine that's what's going on here. But he's so ordinary. There's a normal human appearance about Jesus, but there's something different about him that they don't initially recognize. And we see this played out even in John chapter 20 when Mary Magdalene sees Jesus. It's like they, she mistakes him as a gardener, just a normal guy. So one of the reasons why they couldn't see Jesus is he just looked human. He looked ordinary. There wasn't anything in his physical appearance that would clue them to go, boom, boom, he's resurrected, right? Second reason why they had a difficulty seeing Jesus is because these two men didn't recognize their real need. And if you don't recognize your real need, you're going to miss Jesus. I mean, look what happened here. Look, verse 19. So, so he goes and says, hey, are you the only person that has a clue what's going on here? Well, verse 19, Jesus goes, well, what things? And look what these men say about Jesus of Nazareth. This is who he was. He was a prophet, a powerful in word and deed and before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped. So look, look, think about this. These two men, there, there is no category in their minds to where the death of Jesus can serve the purposes of God. Are you following that? They had no category, no, nothing in their mind to where they could believe that the death of Jesus could serve the purposes of God because that's what they say here. He was handed over to the rulers, chief priests. They sentenced him to death. They crucified him. 
but we had hoped. He died. So then therefore, all of our hope of what we thought this man was gonna do is dashed. We go on here, what do they want Jesus to do? That we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So they had hoped that Jesus was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And so what he's talking about when he says redeem is a word that we're somewhat familiar with. It means to liberate, to set free, to deliver from slavery. And so in their mind, their greatest need was that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the tyranny and the oppression of Rome. And so as soon as Jesus, they thought he was the one, as soon as he died, then therefore, wow, our hopes are dashed because he's in the grave and we're still under the oppression of Rome. So hear me, as long as you don't recognize your real need, these men thought the real need is we need to be set free from Roman oppression. And since that did not happen, they can't see Jesus. But Jesus did not come to just set them free from Rome. There's a deeper, deeper issue going on here. There's a deeper slavery that they need to be set free from, and that is sin and death, and that is what Jesus accomplished on the grave. These men could not see Jesus because they did not recognize their real need. The death of Jesus is not the end of their hope. It's actually the beginning of it. So, Jesus is hidden Somehow, in a supernatural way, God kind of keeps them, but at the same time, there, there's a responsibility on our part. It, you know, he's ordinary. He's kind of human. They don't really see their real need. They think their real need is, we need to be delivered from Rome. No, 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 Jesus came to give you a deeper uh, relief there and a release from slavery. So, so that is the first part. He's hidden. But now the bookend is what? At the end of this what? They see him. They recognize him. They finally get that this is Jesus. So, so the question you got to ask is how? How do they go from they don't know who he is, to now all of a sudden at the end of, the, of this little narrative, we recognize him, we see them. How did they get there? And this is what I want you to think about as we kind of work through, because there's two ways that Jesus shows himself. I want you to think about this. Jesus could have revealed himself in any way he wanted to. Any way. I mean, just let your imagination fly. I mean, he could have levitated, right? He could have just brought down a host of angels. He could have just rose from the ground and look at me, I'm Jesus, right? He could have made rocks and things float around and do all kinds of crazy stuff in the air if he wanted to. He could have done anything he wanted to to reveal to these men that I am the resurrected Jesus. I'm, I'm not dead, I'm not in the grave, I am alive. He could, have, he could have revealed it in any way he wanted to, but he chooses to do it through two, look, 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 two ordinary means. The first one is the Bible. The Bible. Interesting, isn't it? Look what he says here in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Jesus have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all Scripture concerning himself. Look, it's really foolish if you go to a cookbook to try to figure out how you work on your car. Amen? Amen? 
And so it is with the Bible. The Bible, look, look, the Bible is not primarily a book of rules. The Bible is not primarily a book of principles that you are need to, to live by. The Bible is not primarily like a guidebook on how you're to live. The Bible is not history. It's not science. Yes, yes, there are rules in the Bible. Yes, the Bible gives us guidelines and principles to live by. Yes, there are science in there. There's true history in the Bible. But please hear me. If you do not read it primarily as a revelation of God, specifically in Jesus Christ, then you will miss Jesus. Are you following me? If you do not read the Bible as a revelation of God, specifically a revelation of who Jesus is, then you will miss Jesus. The reason why at the end, these two disciples say, wasn't our hearts burning within us? The reason why it was burning within them is not because Jesus was unpacking principles to live by. Let me give you 12 ways to have a great life, buddies. Let's go. Here they are. Number one, blah, 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 whatever it is. That's not what Jesus did there. He opened up the Old Testament and showed them himself. And as they see the beauty and the wonder of this man named Jesus, their hearts are warmed. Their hearts are inflamed. So if you go to the Bible trying to find principles, you're gonna miss Jesus. And I would argue your heart's gonna get cold. But if you go to the scriptures in order to say, I want to know Christ, then your hearts are gonna be warmed because that's the point of the Bible. I mean, think about this, guys. You can go home and look at this entire chapter. In chapter 24, in these three little narratives, no one has a clue about Easter. No one. No one has a clue what's going on here. And it's only when, each time, each story, it's only when Jesus shows up on the scene and explains the Bible that these people begin to get it. I mean, follow, you go home and find it. Look at the, the story we looked at yesterday. Look at this story. And we're not looking at the third story. Sorry, but you can look at that yourself, right? Look at that. All three of them, everyone's clueless until Jesus shows up and explains about this issue through the Bible. It reminds me of, of a story that Luke records. I think he's the only one that records this story in, in Luke chapter 16 about a um, Lazarus and a rich man. And so Lazarus is a, is a poor man who spent almost his entire life as a beggar at, at a city gate right next to this rich man. And the story goes basically like this. The rich man and Lazarus die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, which is you know, translation, more heaven, paradise. The rich man goes to hell where he is in absolute torment. And Jesus tells us that this rich man has this conversation with Abraham and he asks him two things. The first thing is this, can you send Lazarus down and just give me a little water so that my torment will be relieved? And Abraham goes an explanation of why he cannot do that. And then he asks a second request. And look what he says here, starting in verse 27 of chapter 16. And then he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And then Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, look, look, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The point that Jesus is trying to make with this parable is that God's Word is enough. If God's Word will not persuade you, then nothing will persuade you. That's exactly what's going on here in Luke 24. Jesus shows up on the scene, and what does he use? He uses the Word of God to reveal to them that I am alive. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he opened up the Scriptures and said, let me show you me in this text. That's the first. Open up the text, open up the Bible, shows himself, their eyes begin to see. Secondly, we see he shares a meal. I'm going to step back. Of all the things that Jesus could have done that are crazy extraordinary, outlandish, over the top, right? Gandalfy again, right? Of all the ways that he could have revealed himself to these two men, he opens up the Bible. Let me show you what the Old Testament says about me. Then he eats dinner. Look what happens here. Verse 28. And as they approached the village to which they were going, which is Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going further. I have no idea why he's acting like that. I just think it's funny and humorous. And maybe someday the Lord will let us know why he just was acting like that. I don't know. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly. Look, man, stay with us for it's nearly evening. It's like, you know, safe for you to be out here. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. In verse 30, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And look what happened. Then their eyes were opened. So like, look, look, what's going on here? Are these two guys like remembering the Lord's Supper, that last meal? Is that what's happening here? Are they, they kind of remembering that little last week no. Why? Why is that? Why? Why? Because these two guys weren't there. The Bible is very explicit in all the places where they talk about the Last Supper, that the only people that were at the Last Supper were Jesus and the 12 disciples. They weren't there. So they're not remembering the Last Supper because they weren't in the room. So what are they remembering? I'll tell you what they're remembering. They're remembering the feeding of the 5,000. That's what they're remembering. And Luke is making a direct connection here between what happens in Luke chapter 9 to what happens to these two men as they're having a meal with Jesus. Because there's a direct parallel here because Luke chapter 9 is the first place in the Luke's gospel where he begins to reveal who Jesus is. And it's the first place where Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And both accounts, you can go home and read this, both accounts take place as the day is coming to an end. Both are preceded by other suggestions about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Both involve the same sequence of take the bread, bless it, break it, and give it. The feeding of the 5,000 for the purpose of the gospel of Luke is a revelatory story. And what I just mean by that is this, it's a way of revealing the very identity and the nature of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what's going on here. As they're eating this dinner with Jesus, they are seeing who Jesus is. And so you got to remember, like when you're sitting around a meal in this time, as well as in our time, it's a place of fellowship, isn't it? It's a place where you kind of share life. It's a place where you you know, you talk about your day and how things went. It's a place where intimacy happens and deep conversations sometimes happen. So it also happens here, probably more 
up on another level than what it is in our culture and in our time. But man, this is kind of like, we get this. And so, so look, they see Jesus through a combination of these two ordinary means. The word of God is shared with them in the context of community. The word of God is shared with them in the context of relationship. So it's not just the word. It's not Jesus and those guys and the word, and that's it. And it's not just community and relationships. No, it's both. They work hand in hand. The word of God is explained to them. And in the context of relationship, both of these, Jesus is seen. Jesus is revealed. Wow, there he is. I recognize him. As one writer says, their eyes are opened around the table because the scriptures were open to them on the road. They can't see Jesus. Beginning. At the end, they recognize him. How? The word and having a meal. Look, here's what is striking to me about this little narrative. And I think this is what Luke is after. What is striking to me in this passage is that it's not very extraordinary. Yes. Yes, all right. Yes. The resurrection of Jesus is the big, huge surprise in chapter 24, and is, it is extremely extraordinary. But what is striking to me is that this extraordinary miracle is revealed through the ordinariness of life. You got to hear this. Jesus could have revealed himself again. Third time I'm saying this. Any way he wanted to. This extraordinary miracle of the resurrection of Jesus is revealed to these two guys in the ordinariness of life. They're just walking home on a stroll. Like you walk around your neighborhood having a conversation. There comes Jesus. They don't know who he is. They just start talking to him also. The Bible, just start talking about the Old Testament. Scriptures that these guys are probably pretty much familiar with. And this guy's bringing things out that they've never seen before. They eat dinner together. And in these ordinary things of life that all of us in this room do, Jesus is seen. I love what Daryl Bach says about this. Uh, he's a commentator, scholar, wrote an enormous commentary on the, on the Gospel of Luke. Man, great stuff there, really. Is. But I love what he says here, and this is what I'm trying to get after. Listen to what he says. The table, or the meal, dinner, was a place where Jesus was heard and where his presence came across most intimately. You see that all throughout the Gospel. I mean, he's always eating in the Gospel of Luke, all right? This fact, look at it. This fact suggests that Jesus reveals himself in the midst of the most basic Moments of life. He is at home in the midst of our everyday activity. If you don't get what I'm trying to say, let me, let me show you, all right? There's a painting, and I'm not a huge art dude, so this is things I find in research, all right? So don't like read it. Oh, he must be really into art. I'm not. I, I wish I was, but I'm not. So this is a painting 
that was painted back in the six, about 1618 by a Spanish artist. His first name's Diego. Last name, I'm not going to even try to say his last name. I mean, in the first service last week at Easter, I called Bono Bono. I mean, goodness gracious, right? It's like, you're such a moron, Lyle. So I'm not going to even try to say this guy's last name. It's Diego, blah, 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 blah. That's what it is, all right? And this is a painting that was, that it's entitled The Kitchen Maid with the Supper of Emmaus. And it's interesting, in the back left-hand corner, you, you see the resurrected Jesus talking with the two guys on the road. But the focus of this painting is that maid and her astonished look. And what has happened here is she's overhearing Jesus talk, and she has just found out that she served a meal to a dead man who's now alive. And she's astonished. And she's cleaned up the meal, and what's, what's now at focus is this white rag that is used to clean up the meal. And listen how one writer puts this. I don't have it on the slide, but you guys can hear this, all right? Listen to what he says. This is a, in explaining this painting, this is a wonderful collision has happened here. A collision of eternity and time that transforms everyday life. The rag is elevated, not physically, but elevated metaphorically. It has just been used to serve God, which means this, all of life, everyday life is full of God's presence and glory. Everyday life, all of life. And so, I'll break it down even further for you. So when we talk, like, you know, some of you might have conversations, all right? You know, you talk about the resurrected life and you might ask questions, hey, are you living the resurrected life? Well, all right, what does that mean? And really, what does that mean? I mean, I don't know if you're like me or not, but I, probably, because we live in Western culture, when I say resurrected life, probably most of us, our first thought is something radical, something that's outside of normal life, right? Oh, our family, we're, we're just, we're selling our house. We're selling every single car. We're packing our bags and somehow we're getting Africa. We're gonna find some village that doesn't know Jesus. We're planning our deal there. And that's where we're saying, man, just something radically out there is what the resurrected life is. It's, it's oh man, yeah, this is what we're gonna do. Oh yeah, here we go. We're, we're just gonna, we're gonna make sure we have cars that got like 500,000 miles on them and we gotta push them everywhere we go because dadgummit, we're radical Christians, right? Look, yes, that's a part of it. Yes, we need to take risks. Yes, people in remote villages need to hear the gospel and we have a responsibility to see to it that they hear it, yes. But listen to me, if your definition of a resurrected life does not include loading the dishwasher, fixing your neighbor's fence, putting gas in your car so you can make it to work and back, changing diapers, wiping snotty noses, giving baths to your kids, having a conversation with your son or daughter, if that is not your definition also of the resurrected life, listen to me, you're gonna be really frustrated. And you're always, always gonna be restless, wanting more, and you can't even be present in the moment because your definition of the resurrected life 
has nothing to do with the ordinariness of life. And I find it ironic that of all the ways that Jesus could have revealed himself to these two guys, he comes alongside them, just has a little conversation, he opens up the Bible, and they have a meal together. That's your world. That's your life. Ordinary. Normal. I mean, look, we, we had a great day Sunday. I mean, it was wonderful. Huge celebration. We always go big. I had two desserts, amen, right? And they were daggum good. I had two desserts. I took pictures of it. Some of you guys texted me and sent pictures of going to Dairy Queen and going here and celebrating. Like, hallelujah, yes. But here's my question. What was your Monday like? Here's mine. I got up around six. My wife is already getting ready for work. I go upstairs, get these two little guys out of bed. Well, not that guy. He's not with me, all right? But I love him. All right, he's a kid, dude. But he's taking care of Conlon right now. But Conlon and Davin, pour them bowl of cereal, get them going for breakfast, turn on the coffee pot, give myself a cup of coffee. I sit down, try to read my Bible a little bit and pray. And in the midst of all that, trying to get kids ready for school. And usually that just means yelling and screaming at them. All right, just want to be real honest with you. And Conlon will probably testify to that. You got five minutes, put the stupid cat down. Get your shoes on, or are you just going barefooted? I go get uh, Joseph, my, sick, my oldest, is already getting ready to go because he's doing uh, the co-op program where he basically goes to college. Go get Joseph, get him ready. We get in the car, take him to school. I had to take my mom back home that morning because she'd been with us about two and a half weeks, get her settled. I come back here, do work. I've got a counseling appointment. I get home around 7.30 at night. I sit down and try to have a, a dinner, catch up with Kathy, how her day was. I go try to spend some time with the little guys, the boys. We go have, we get them in the baths or showers. I don't know, maybe we didn't do baths on showers on Monday. They just like to stink, so we just probably put them to bed. You know, we come back downstairs. We get lunches made. We get ready for the day. I think we end up watching an episode of The Office or... Uh, the next, the last man standing just so we can laugh a little bit, you know. I kiss my two oldest boys goodnight. We go to bed, and guess what? I fall asleep. An ordinary, normal day. I wasn't levitating. I didn't see any visions of angels. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, which it is, then that ordinary day was full of meaning and significance in the presence of God. A young lady named Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called A Liturgy of the Ordinary. I've not read this book. I've read some posts that's probably in this book. And here's one of those posts, all right? So like, if you're still kind of trouble tracking with me, hopefully this, this quote will help you. It's, it's kind of long. And, this, and then I'm done, all right? So I know we're running out of time here. But this is kind of in the midst of a conversation that she had with a college friend who uh, went to teach at, a, at a, you know, a, one of the most at-risk schools in the nation and had a nervous breakdown, ends up moving back home and um, is working as a waiter. And gradually, it gets better, and she talks about their conversation. Look what she says. When he landed back home, weary and discouraged, we walked about 
we talked about what had gone wrong. We'd gone to a top college where people achieved big things. They wrote books and started nonprofits. We were told again and again that we would be world changers. We were part of a young Christian movement that encouraged us to live bold, meaningful lives of discipleship, which baptized this world-changing impetus as a way to really follow after Jesus. We were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be average person living average life in a beautiful way. A prominent new monasticism community house had a sign on the wall that famously read this, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. Amen? That's what I want to put in my house for crying out loud. My life, talking about this lady that's writing this, my life is really rich in dirty dishes and diapers these days and really short in revolutions. I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up, doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I lived in my past. And so this is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day. Can I just get an amen? That's what I need. An ordinary day, an afternoon with the colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my stinking noisy neighbor. I added the stinking in there, that's not her. Without despair, right? The bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life. And the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me. And that, that is enough. And we know that to be true. Because he's alive. He's resurrected. So even in the ordinary means, daily things you do, dude, they're infused with tons of significance. So look, look here. I'm closing with this. Please, please do not hear me say, don't go to the extreme here and say, oh, Allah's telling us not to risk. Allah's telling us just to go, you know, blow up the inner tube and float down the lazy river. That's not what I'm saying, all right? That's not. Yes, be bold, be courageous, take risks, sell everything. I mean, if that's what God is calling you to do. But at the same time, look, at the same time, your definition of the resurrected life, the radical life, whatever you want to call that, has to also have normal, ordinary things that happen in life because it's all infused with meaning. All of it is. And I would say that the ordinary Things in life matter because they are the means by which God uses to bring formation in your life. So look, look I, here's the one question. If you're a Christian here, do you, do you have problems with everydayness? Do you find yourself restless? Feeling like you're missing something? Feeling like you're never doing enough. Look, Jesus is alive. He's risen. And there's meaning and significance in changing that three-year-old, well, I hope it's not a three-year-old, two-year-old diaper, all right? 
If you still have three-year-olds in diapers, it's okay. I, we probably did too, right? Are you with me? You're not a Christian here? Then here's my encouragement for you. Sometimes, sometimes we want this, this kind of Paul or Saul experience where we just have this massive, extraordinary event that happens in my life to where now I see Jesus. You know, I, and I think of Ben and Sarah, and there's something that's simplistic about their story that's so attractive. They went to church. They heard the gospel. And God used that message to birth something new in them. It wasn't like Ben was driving down the road and almost getting ready to hit head on with the car and an angel pops out and says, wake up, trust Jesus, and swerve your car, right? No, just an ordinary means that God uses in your life to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. What's going on in here? What's he doing? Don't wait for some kind of massive miracle. The miracle's already been done. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Believe it. Put your trust in it. Let's pray together.